Welcome to Just Between Us, a podcast powered by the Corey Johnson Program for Post-Traumatic Healing in Boston. Every week, we focus on ways to heal from the devastating impact of collective trauma on our world. My name is Reverend Liz Walker. My name is Judell Cummings. COVID-19 is still a threat in our community. While nearly 60% of the city has received two vaccines, Roxbury, and I'm going to double check these figures, is about 58% uh, having received one shot. Mattapan, which is the neighborhood that really concerns us, has about a 44% overall uh, uh, reception of the vaccine, but 40% of black residents are fully vaccinated in Mattapan. That's a disturbing number considering the threat of this disease and the new variants. There is still much work to be done, and our guest today is doing the work. Diane Wilkerson is the head of the Black Boston COVID-19 Coalition, which has been on the front line of vaccine education and equity from the very beginning. Diane, it's an honor to have you with us. Thanks for joining us today. First of all, how do you look at those numbers that we just talked about? You know those numbers well. I, I do know them. First, let me say how much of a pleasure it is for me to be here and how important it is for us to have a medium to share information with people in a timely fashion. You know, um, Boston, Boston's COVID numbers or Boston's housing numbers or Boston's social economic numbers or Boston's employment numbers or Boston health numbers. So none of this should surprise us, but it definitely should concern us because we have never faced anything like this in any of our lifetime uh, when you're focusing on a pandemic. We, uh, uh, the, we, we meaning the Black Boston COVID-19 Coalition, uh, started when, when we heard the first time about this thing called coronavirus. You know, we had access issues from the beginning, you know, even for black residents who wanted to, and Latino residents, I would say too, who wanted to get vaccinated, you know, didn't have places at the ready. And, and we were able to get on top of that. So at one point in the month of uh, March and April and May and June, you would find a place on every corner, which is exactly what it needs to be. All of those people who had an access issue, we've provided access, which is why you saw once that number had been depleted, the number of the numbers dropped precipitously. Right. Mm -hmm. right. And your work regarding breaking access barriers I mean, that's really what your whole group has been about. And so I know you guys started uh, mobile clinics during this whole process. What, tell us a little bit more about well, the mobile we, clinic. Well, we actually started a mobile clinic when the mass sites started to close down. Mm -hmm. One, why? Because we knew that we had just dealt with the first stage, people who were looking at it, people who didn't walk into the uh, community health centers, who didn't walk into the mass vaccine sites. They weren't coming, we had to go get them. Um, we offer the Pfizer vaccine and J&J &J and Moderna too, but we really always travel with the Pfizer because that's the only one that's approved for young people. So for the 12 year old to 15 year olds or 12 to 18 year olds, um, we have to give them Pfizer. That's the only one that's been approved um, and has the EUA from the um, FD, emergency use authorization, by the way, um, from the FD, FDA. And so um, it's been a slow and steady process. And I would be the first to tell you, we, 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 we could be there six hours and sometimes do five people. Really? Well, Diane, you more than anybody I know are right there. So what, <laughs> right. what's the reasoning? What are you hearing? Why are people so Oh hesitant? my goodness. Um, 
I, I don't like to use the word hesitancy because I think it's, uh, it's overused. It doesn't really tell the story of what's happening. But I do think that um, I've heard it. Like, it's not what people tell me. Like, I've heard people say to me, I can't do that. Don't you know they, they, they put chips in, in that thing? They got, then they got chips in everybody's body. When I, another woman right at the park last week said, you know that you know they, have a, they put a magnet in your body if you get that, that vaccine. And I'm thinking, and I don't try to be funny, I'm not trying to be funny, but I'm thinking this woman standing there, she's got bangles like up her arm, and if I had a magnet, she'd be stuck to my chest right now. <laughs> she doesn't even know. Like, but you, yeah. but you, I can't say that right. because when I'm listening, I'm looking at her, and I know that she believes what she's telling me. Mm -hmm. um, young people, um, young men in particular, don't want to get the vaccine because it's going to harm their ability to have children. I mean, it's, it's, it's those kind of the, you know, I don't know enough about it. Um, and you know what? I mean, I think it's so easy for us sometimes to be so quick in the response, but you got to hear what people are saying because when they're telling you this, they believe it. Our, our MO is different when we're out in the mobile van. For one, we travel with um, black nurses and black physicians on the van. They're the ones who are doing the work because they're the only ones who can answer those questions directly about the health issues, the medicine, the science, you know, and telling people what we know, what we see every day. Unfortunately, on the news is a lot of the, 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 um, the cable and the news hosts are, are explaining COVID-19 to people. And, and I think there's no one who can explain it better with more, um, uh, reliability, if you will, than the, the people with the medical background, right. you know. How difficult was it to establish the Black COVID Coalition? You know. Were there any challenges? Or... <laughs> you know, here's, so here's what happened. I think, mm -hmm. you know, the, we, we literally got together in the first week in March of 2020, just calling each other. You know, I'm reading and I'm still like everybody else calling, you know, did you did you see this thing? Oh, this is, this looks like this is going to be serious. You know, did you read about the coronavirus? I remember the conversation with Priscilla Flint Banks, who was, who stepped up and I said, Priscilla, you know, you, you have an office, you need to, you, we need, we need to start meeting and talking with people. She says, you want, you, are you saying you want me to be the convener? Yes, I am. I, that's exactly what I'm saying. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we just started calling. So the first week there was like four of us, the second week it was eight, and then the following week it's 16. And then, you know, it's next thing you know, it's 50. Because remember that time people were so afraid and didn't know what was going on. Mm -hmm. We're, we went into lockdown on the 4th of March is when the Boston Public Schools shut down. And, um, and so people were looking for information. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't, it wasn't difficult for us to organize. What it was difficult for once we organized to get people to listen to what we knew and what we saw on the ground that was happening every day. One, one of the things that we have been discussing, and you mentioned this when we started this conversation, is that what is happening with the vaccine and all the problems with COVID-19 really speak to bigger problems mm. in our community. What has to change to bring equity in healthcare? And I know that's a big question, but what are some of the first things that you think have to, have to change? And do you believe they're changing? I do believe that, that not only are changing, but there's still a lot of space and room and opportunity for more. And that's because of something that has nothing to do with COVID-19 as much as um, kind of may, maybe divine providence, all the other things that are happening so that 
in the context of COVID-19, we find ourselves in the middle of a racial reckoning that you couldn't have planned it, you couldn't no. schedule it, you couldn't know that this would be happening at the same time. Uh, and so um, one of the things that I think that has to happen is, um, and I said it before, pe getting people to listen, to really listen. I'll give you a perfect example. Um, one of the big chunks of money that uh, is being targeted in the COVID-19 recovery uh, from the president's um, edict that they want to focus on um, increasing black home ownership. So uh, I, got a, I got a text saying, you know, there's a, all of the housing advocates are doing a Zoom this afternoon so they can get together in Massachusetts and kind of come up with a plan to submit to the governor on how we're gonna use this homeownership housing money. And so um, I, I got on the Zoom. There were 143 people, wow. all housing advocates. And of the 143 people, I saw three black people. Hmm. And I said, doesn't this tell the whole story? Hmm. Many other people were people that I knew that used to come in my office in the Senate, the advocates who are still 20, 30 years still at it. I'm not mad at them for being still at it, but I also have to challenge them. Do you all see what I see? After the call, I, I started making calls. Mm. I said, I, you know, I've been thinking about how to say this and I don't, I can't think of a, like, there's no nice way, but I have to tell you that I'm really concerned that, um, at some point, you guys got to give it up. You like, do you think that the best way for us to increase black homeownership is to turn over all the money to white people? Hmm. You know, and I, and I, and I'm saying this to people who are my friends. Like, come on, guys, did you mm -hmm. see what I see? Mm -hmm. Did you see what I just saw? Mm -hmm. It was startling to me. Like I said again, startling, not surprising. Mm -hmm. It's the same reality for COVID. You know, you got to believe that the people who tell you that we want to use this as an opportunity to reimagine communities of color, black people, our relationship with healthcare institutions overall. As you said, this is a part of a bigger issue. Um, but in order to do that, we're gonna be working with a lot of folks who don't look like us and they have to hear it. We have to be patient too, mm -hmm. because what I've said to my friends is you gotta understand is that for the folks who are sincere about this and are serious about it, they're gonna say some things that might offend you. They, they, you know, with the best of intentions, they're gonna say some things that might sound stupid to you or offensive, and we may respond in the same way, right. not intentionally, right. to them in ways that sound offensive to them, not intentionally. So we have to be patient too. With the people who say, we wanna figure out a way to make this better. We have to, and we gotta give some space for the mess ups and the oops, you know, and, um, I think that, that is, that's, that's our challenge yeah. going forward, mm -hmm. to be listening to each other mm -hmm. and listening with, a, with patience to allow people to not get it right the mm -hmm. first time. Mm -hmm. okay. That's almost like a spiritual thing too, to listen with love and to listen with yeah. compassion and to listen yeah. with openness, which, which is hard to do sometimes, and, I think. And on top of that, it is hard to listen. And there are many reasons why we don't listen. I mean, sometimes it's stubbornness yes. and just our personality. And then other times it is about trauma. It's some real history too, right? right? Exactly, exactly. So when it comes to getting vaccines or people not listening or, you know, how much do you think trauma plays a role in that? I think it's deep, I think it's steeped in trauma. Mm -hmm. I think that the stories, the memories that we have in terms of what we do know mm -hmm. about our relationship with healthcare, you can't help but 
think about Henrietta Lacks, but it's also up to us to explain to people, this is not that, Mm -hmm. you know, this is a worldwide pandemic where uh, people were dropping at every economic strata. It forced the scientists to go into the labs and come up with a plan. And ironically, the person who did that happens to be a young black woman. Mm -hmm. And we're all taking the same thing. So it's not one of those things where they're giving us something different or we're the only ones, but we got to walk through that. And we got to know that just saying it one time is not necessarily going to change the minds of, of, of many people like my own. I, I was not born in a hospital because, uh, you know, uh, Reverend Walker and I share the same home state. They were not allowing black women to give birth in hospitals in Jefferson County in Arkansas in the fifties, which is where I was born. And so, um, my mom didn't have a first experience with hospital childbirth until she came to Massachusetts mm-hmm. and got pregnant with my sister and couldn't get back to Arkansas fast enough because that was her plan. And my sister came early and she ended up being born in Springfield in the hospital. And my mom was like, wow, you mean like they take the baby at night and I get to sleep? You know what <laughs> I mean? Like really think about it at that yeah. time because it was, uh, you know, yeah. the midwife birthed right. me. Um, you know, my grandma's house. That's how it worked. And so we have this history of our narratives are, uh, many of our narratives, when I say our black people, our narratives are connected to trauma. Mm -hmm. They're Mm -hmm. all about trauma. Mm -hmm. The middle passage of slavery, it's all about trauma. Very traumatic. You know, the sixties, you know, the, the fights that went on the and, and, you know, just getting our children to the school doorstep, you know, to the doorstep of the public schools, trauma. Yeah. So this is our history. And that impacts everything I think that we everything. do and learn and, and take in and certainly impacts what we're going through now. One of the things we've learned in our program, the Corey Johnson program, is that trauma affects all of us. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we had this conversation today. And Diane, we know you have your own more of your own personal oh, stories. Absolutely. You just shared that. And we want to talk to you more about that, but we're not going to do that this time. We're <laughs> going to do that. We got so much to ask you that we're going to do that in our next edition. Exactly. Can't so wait. that's it for this week's <laughs> Just Between Us. But join us next week. Diane Wilkerson shares her personal experience with trauma. And we hope you'll continue to join us in our weekly Zoom conversations called Can We Talk? where people from all walks of life share their stories of loss, grief, hope, and healing. And those stories all lead to healing. That's the key here we want you to know. So please join us. We're going to start having conversations out at the uh, Roxbury Y outside, and we'll keep you posted on, on that as well. If you want to learn more about Can We Talk and the Corey Johnson Program for Post-Traumatic Healing, visit our website, at rpcsocialimpactctr.org. That's a mouthful, so I'm going to say it again. rpcsocialimpactctr.org. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Be well.